Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name's A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Ziegler, best-selling author, and stay alive, no matter what occurs, and I will find you. This is episode 23 of Story Smack, the podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Last week, we had author Rob Reed on as our guest, as he was in town for Comic-Con. This week, we were supposed to have on Diana Gabaldon, author of the Outlander series, <clears throat> who was also in town for Comic-Con, but she was so swamped with appearances related to Outlander TV show on Stars, she couldn't make it. Rob came on to talk about Shallow Grave, and if you heard last week's episode, that was Danny Boyle's first uh, feature film directorial debut, because that was one of his favorite movies. Uh, when we asked Diana what movie she wanted, we said, do you want to be on our show? She was standing there with Rob, and this kind of like, great, we'll have you guys on guest the show. You're both going to be at, at Comic-Con San Diego. We asked Rob, and then we got to Diana. We're like, what movie do you want to cover? And then before we could even finish the sentence, she oh, was easy. like, yeah. Last of Mohicans. <laughs> yep. Last of Mohicans. So, um, you know, before we, that, so that was her pick. Yeah. So we don't get to chat with Diana this week, but we did watch Last of the Mohicans to prepare for her visit to the Lair of Doom. So we're going to cover it anyway. Uh, maybe we'll talk to her in the future. Maybe we'll get her next Comic-Con or another con somewhere down the road. Yeah. She seemed very, very busy this Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Um, so Diana is awesome. We want to have her on, but this isn't uh, this isn't a content disaster because not only was Last of the Mohicans one of my favorite flicks, but it also just so happens to be the 25th anniversary of this movie. It came out September of 1992. Oh, which is killing me because this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. And part of the reason for that is it was such a hullabaloo when I was in college mm-hmm. 25 years ago mm-hmm. that... Uh, that I was just like, you know what? It's overdone. It's too much. I'm not watching it. Not watching it. Too oh, much. God. Too much jibber jab. Too yes. much talk. Yes. So. Uh, so. So I did not know it was the 25th anniversary oh. of the movie, but it's a nice coincidence. Uh, you know what else you didn't know? Oh Lord. That's right. At the end of this podcast, I have not one, not two, not three, but seven things you probably did not know about the last <sighs> weekends. Just as you did not know, it was the 25th anniversary of this movie. Is, was that one of the seven? Hopefully. No. No. <laughs> Well, of course, of course. (laughs) Okay, so Last of the Mohicans is based on a novel by James Fenimore Cooper, published in 1826. uh, There have been several movie versions of this movie. The one we're talking about is the 1992 movie, which stars three-time Oscar winner Daniel Day-Lewis. It was directed by Michael Mann, who also helmed Heat and the Miami Vice movie. I don't know if the Miami Vice movie is way up there on his list of uh, awesome things oh, that he's heat. made. But Heat, yes. Heat. Yes. So Daniel Day-Lewis, he just rules in this flick. It is, by 92 standards, I guess, pretty shockingly violent. Uh, it's not gory, but it's wicked, wicked violent. Some great performances in here. In particular, I personally dug the performance of Wes Studi as Magua. He is the, uh, he's a brutal killer powered by revenge. He is, I guess you would call him the quote unquote bad guy in this movie, but in a way he's a hero driven by revenge against the people who have wronged him. Ah, yeah, that's a good point. I totally, yes, that's exactly Mm -hmm. how you should look at this. If you shot this film from his perspective, he's kind of out for justice. Mm -hmm. He's been falsely imprisoned, enslaved. Yep. His kids are killed. His village is burned. His people are enslaved as well. Mm -hmm. It sounds exactly like every classic movie setup. So maybe from man's perspective, uh, he is not the bad guy, but he's definitely the antagonist to Daniel Day-Lewis's lead role. I've never read the book. Have you read the book? I have. You have read the book. So I don't know if Magua's portrayal 
is in the movie is close to the way it was in the book. I'm going to imagine not because American Indians were not, pers- pers- they were not presented in very positive light back then. What okay, do you think? So I, I mean, I think it's been quite a while since it was high school that I read this, but um, I, I do think that, that the injustice of it is there as I recall, but his in fierceness the book. In the book. and yeah, that's okay. was sort of the point of, of, of the last of the Mohicans that there's a, People are deserving no matter how we categorize them before we get to know them kind of thing. Okay. That said, I do think that um, the movie is the movie, and then we're talking about the movie, not the book. And I don't want to miss that great portrayal, so let's get into the story smack talk. Well, right off the bat- um, Oh, spoiler alert. So, of course. Here's your spoiler alerts, everybody. Yep. So, right off the bat, this movie opens up with the soundtrack, which is by Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman. This soundtrack is an absolute mainstay of my book writing soundtracks. Oh, is it? A lot of times I have a whole playlist that's nothing but movie movie and video game soundtracks because sometimes I can't handle lyrics. The rule is uh, I have to skip through all the rap on my playlist because the lyrics are too dense and it distracts me from the writing. Mm-hmm. I can usually listen to rock or something with more simplistic lyrics show tunes. than rap. Yeah, show tunes, exactly. <laughs> show tunes would also distract me. But something where the the the... The lyrics and melody are more part of the song as opposed to the showcase of poetry that that rap is. Sure. So it goes from super dense, can't do it, to moderately dense, can do it. And then sometimes that gets overwhelming and I need to have music with no lyrics at all. Mm-hmm. But if it's a really intense battle type scene, I have a playlist that's full of movie, you know, heavy duty movie soundtracks. And this one's, uh, it comes up all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. You also have, um, here and there, you have classical music. Mm-hmm. And so often I will realize like it'll be Tchaikovsky in the morning or something like that. And then I'll realize halfway through the day that it has switched to <laughs> sweeping, gorgeous, lush kind of soundtrack mm-hmm, stuff. And sometimes mm-hmm. I won't quite realize it because it's all instrumental un- here, until I hear dun, 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 <laughs> or something like that. And then I know that it'll be different. So this is, uh, we usually talk about the, the screenwriter too, but mm-hmm. this one's very confusing because it is obviously a movie based on the book. But it's also based on the 1936 screenplay by Philip Dune, which was based on the book. So here's the breakdown we saw in the credits. It is based on the book by James Fenimore Cooper and the 1936 screenplay by Philip Dune. The adaptation by John Balderson, Paul Perez, and Daniel Moore. They had to adapt Philip Dune's screenplay. And then the final screenplay credit is Michael Mann and Christopher Crowe. What? Yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while, the Writers Guild, like, this is a a big... Uh, often things change in the Writers Guild, and Mm -hmm. I'm not terribly well-versed in this, but I do understand that screenplay credits and how one gets credited uh, change quite a lot. And Mm -hmm. particularly there's uh, Kevin Smith, the writer-director Kevin Smith, has a handful of movies that you can watch. um, Coyote Ugly is one. And know that he doctored that script. He had had hands on it, Mm -hmm. but he's not credited. So he either wrote the first one or he wrote the last version of it. But parts of it look a lot like a Kevin Smith movie. Okay. Set in Jersey, the dad is is like a, a toll booth operator or whatever. They feel like a Kevin Smith movie, but it but he's not credited at all for whichever reason. Mm-hmm. So and we also like we know a few script doctors who are never credited. So I don't know how the rules end up that way, but I think it might be a So you think this is you, an arbitration thing where they're getting all those It could extra be an arbitration thing and it could just be it was so old the rules kind of change. Like mm-hmm. they, they like you have to sort of quote unquote bring it up to code. I don't know how to say that for the writing business, but you have to make sure it's sort of fitting in 
with the rules, the modern day rules, with without um, dismissing the work of the people who came before. It is me. interesting. <laughs> well, counting James Fenimore Cooper's actual book, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people credited with this movie. Not counting anybody who wasn't credited. So, getting into the movie itself, there's just so much cool, cool stuff in here. At eight minutes forty seconds, we have um, the Indians and white man playing together. Perhaps an older version of lacrosse. I did not recognize the sporting event. There were no uh, nets on the sticks, but uh, so it could have been some type of lacrosse. And then we start to get into the drama of, okay, we are, our protagonists are largely Americans and British, right? Those are the mm-hmm. main characters we're going through. They are, this is the French Indian War, I believe, and they are opposed by the French and the Indians, but the British have such low regard for the French. So I wrote this one down because this was an insult by the British commander at the fort. He said, quote, the French don't have the nature for war. Their let wait, their latent voluptuousness combines with their Gallic laziness. And the result is they'd rather eat and make love with their faces than fight. It's interesting. I had a comment there too, but mine was this. I guess it turns out I'm French, not Irish, because I would also rather eat and make love with my face than fight. I was like, I was watching. I'm like, this does not sound like a bad lifestyle choice, It, does, it sir. doesn't sound like a bad plan. Yeah, no, I kind of want to go hang out with the French because this sounds dope. It yeah. sounds like a good lifestyle. Um, and then, uh, and then by 22 minutes into this oh, movie. Wait, oh, wait, I had something at around 13. Me, yeah. So when we first meet uh, Cora, played by Madeline Stowe, mm-hmm. she is rejecting the marriage proposal of Major Duncan Hayward. And how she does it is very politically sound for the time. And she says, my feelings don't go beyond respect and friendship, of which, they, you know, that river runs deep sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just says, oh, why not let those whom you trust your father, decide what's best for you. Yeah. And she has no recourse. There's nothing she can do there. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, we don't have a lot of experience today in today's world, or at least I don't, I should say, um, about this this sort of land-based conflict. And obviously we're not quite in the United States. We're not quite used to foreign uh, soldiers on our soil and all that stuff anymore. Right. But that was a very um, crystallizing way to be like, oh yeah, this is not, this is not even my mama's uh, America. This no. is way before that. This is not my America. This is not my mama's America. And that's a sort of a microcosm. That little experience that Cora has is sort of, yeah, you're, we're going to decide what's best for you is exactly the point it's, of this sort of fight with the Mohicans as well. That, oh, right. I that, see. And so it's this tiny uh, sort of footnote for me, it was anyway, to say like, oh, right. Okay, so realign your expectations. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, the movie mm-hmm. is lush and beautiful. And there's a good rationale for, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis to be playing The Last of the Mohicans. And that's all well explained and all that other stuff. But it's still a world you're not terribly familiar with. So pay right, attention. Right. It's a pre-industrial age um, civilization. Yeah. And it's, even though it is, it is America and it feels a lot of the trappings we're familiar with, it's freaking old. Right. It's real old back right, when right, people right. were, um, people are still awful. They were much more awful back then. Yes. So we get 22 minutes and they are, man is obsessed with the grand vistas showing off. Oh, yes. yes. This is a very 1990s movie. I'm glad you brought that up. Lots I have of a lot across of, the forest. This is a river runs through it. Lush river. This is, yeah, yeah it's, it's Over movies like that. Like, gor- and it is, it is gorgeous yeah. to look at and it is. Sweeping. We watched it on the big basement screen. Yes, yeah, yes, it was yes. Good. Yep. It was good. Uh, but yeah, lots of sweeping vistas, lots of very, very, very big crane shots, lots of 
gloriously huge music. Mm-hmm. Very 90s. Yes. And we get now we're getting into the conflict. Now, of course, at this point, um, we are watching Daniel Day Lewis and the last of the Mohicans, plural, because there's two guys left and they're all they're bros. And uh, Daniel D. Lewis is a white dude whose family was wiped out by, can't remember who, Tribex, but the last Mohican father brought him in and raised him up. So they and are- And calls him his white son. Calls him his white son. And through various scenes in here, you can see he just cares deeply for him and panics in the way a father would anytime his son, any son is in danger. And vice versa. And I vice think versa, yeah, They are quite a family. They're super yeah. committed. And they are dealing with Indians who are uh, working for the French- or are they, we don't know, and are kind of on a rampage. And in the rampage, it's they get to about, oh, I think it's about 30 minutes in, Daniel Lewis comes across a farmstead of people that they actually know that have been butchered and nothing has been stolen. It's just straight up killing. And it was interesting because they, they say they, and uh, Cora, mm-hmm. Cora, of course, is our sheltered, delicate flower who just turns out to be not delicate at all, but she and her sister are from a culture and they don't understand the realities of the world. So like, great. We got to, well, these people are dead. We got to give them a Christian burial to which Daniel Day Lewis is like, can't, can't touch the bodies because yeah. we disturb the bodies. People will know we've been here. So we have to leave these people we know and care about. We have to leave them to rot. So people won't know we were here. Right. So yeah. they don't feed any, any instinct or fire or whatever. I did find that interesting because he's very viscerally, um, sharp mm-hmm. in that moment and it, it i think daniel day lewis deserves the accolades he gets he's mm-hmm. very very talented and i think that was one of those moments he's so heartbroken because he knows these people mm-hmm. and and he doesn't do that which is you know a credit to daniel day lewis and also credit to michael mann and the screenwriters that he doesn't say at that moment well we can't because people will know that we've been here he's like they will stay where they are or yeah. whatever and it's really like Again, if Cora is an analog for us looking back at, at this moment in the movie, us looking back into this window we don't understand, mm-hmm. uh, she doesn't understand it. And it, it it riles her sense of morality. Like, no, we have to do the right thing by these people. And he's like, not at all. The right thing is to do exactly this, you know, and, and he doesn't do the it right nicely. Thing is, the right thing is to stay alive. Right. That, to honor them by, by staying alive. It. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then we get to 35 minutes in, we get to the first big battle scene between European armies. And it's pretty awesome. We've got big cannons firing off. The French are fighting side by side with the Hurons. We're watching an artillery battle play out, you know, this 200 plus year old artillery battle play out. And it's, it's great. It's spectacular. And we get to see that the English are outmatched. Uh, The French are tunneling towards the Mm -hmm. fort. And when they get to a certain point, they'll be able to launch mortars into the fort. And it's the slow choking death of the people in the, in the English fort. Um, And then we get and this where Daniel Day-Lewis and Cora are starting to, starting to click. We've already had scenes where Cora, they, I think they, I don't know if it's from the book or not, but they have Cora who's very resilient and strong woman and her sister who is younger and protected and extremely delicate and fragile. So it's a great contrast because Cora with the big flowing dresses and all the petticoats and everything else, you know, is carrying her own gun. She's jumping in, she's patching dudes up. She is at all points in the movie trying to be part of this. She's doing everything she can to help. If that involves Mm -hmm. fighting, she'll fight. If that involves reloading guns, she'll do that. If that's patching up dudes, she'll do all of that. And she's still, uh, 
which I, I know I've mentioned a couple of times now, but it's so well done and interesting to me because it isn't it isn't there just for show and isn't there to be offensive. She also, if what she needs to do in that moment is behave like a lady, mm-hmm. she does that. She understands the greater good in this in this war zone, in in her station in life as well. And that's not a thing we see. At least I'll speak for myself. I don't. I, I'm not all that good at instantly metering my opinion all the time. Right. <laughs> I can do it. I can be like, right, this is not the place for that. But <clears throat> a lot of times I, you know, and we all do because now we have the internet, the world at our fingertips on the internet and everything else. We feel like, well, this is how I feel. I get to have this. My opinion is valid. And she's sometimes like that moment we were just talking about. She's like, mm-hmm. and that's it. She, she just, understands the yes. greater good there and that she is part of the whole and and again, if we're looking at her as an analog for us looking back into this window in time, mm-hmm. that's an, an an anachronistic thing. We don't, I, at least I don't do very often. Yes. So completely at the turn of a dime, you know, I don't stop so completely and be like, got it. She's she's doing everything that she can. There's not only but there's only so much she can do. It maxes out. And then um, 47 minutes in the movie, the falling in love begins. Oh Lord! All oh, the falling in love begins. We see that Daniel Day Lewis is. Not very subtle, Mm-mm. right? But he's all tall and good looking and everything. And at that point, he's watching her patch up, uh, I think, one of his buddies. And he's just in a very subtle pickup line. He's got a small little smile on his face. And he's just staring at her, nonstop staring at her. And she gets a little bit uncomfortable. And it's, and so, what are you looking at, sir? And, he's, and he just responds, I'm looking at you, miss. And you're like, and you can see the reaction on her face. Like, he sees me. Oh, he really <laughs> sees the real me. And then they both smile and it's, it's, that's where everything And Marvin Gaye starts to play in the back. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no, 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 no. the very no. white, the very white <laughs> moment is coming up. Uh, but through this point in the movie, she's shown herself to be a really tough customer. She's drawn down right next to him, patching up wounds. She, and he hasn't, but he also hasn't told her what to, she should do or mm-hmm. how she should act or how she should think. He embraces her help when it's available and he is, does take charge in other areas. And it's like, yeah. When the bullets start flying, you're going to do what I tell you to do because I've done this before and you haven't. So that's all. That's all pretty cool. But he's also pretty consistent about that, right? He he does that in general, and he defers to his father when yeah. his father is there, <clears throat> and he doesn't he doesn't direct Cora's sister because he understands she's the one best able to do that. So he's giving her instructions and then giving like his brother's instructions mm-hmm. and assuming they're going to go on and do the right thing for the people sort of downstream from them. Yeah. Efficient. So then we get to, I didn't have a lot of problems in this movie, but I did get to one and maybe firearms geeks out there can be, help me with some historical accuracy, but 48 and a half minutes in uh, Natty Bumpo, you know, mm. that's, that's the guy's name. Why that's do Daniel I hate Natty so much? I don't know. I don't know. I don't hate the character. I hate the nickname Natty. It's Nathaniel so Bumpo. So much. Um, and he is, he and his pops, D last of the Mohicans start to do some serious sniper work. So they, they have to send a runner out from this fort and out in the, what is the tribe? I forgot to write down the tribe. Who are they fighting in this? The, not the Hurons. Yeah. yeah. The, Huron, the Hurons are out in the woods waiting for runners to come out and slaughtering when, the, when they come out. Cause that's their guerrilla fighters. It's they're phenomenal at, they, you know, like basically 
American Indians invented guerrilla warfare by and large in the modern scale. Um, cause people had never seen shit like that before. Modern armies had never seen that. Why won't these guys come out and make a formation? We can shoot them. No, they're going to hide behind trees and lurk in the woods and you guys got to come and get us. So they're in the, why woods. won't they die a gentleman? Yeah. Death? Why won't they, why yeah. don't they know how you're supposed to fight a war? And now everybody fights war like that. So the runner takes off and it's one of Daniel Day Lewis's pals. And then Daniel Day Lewis and pops Mohican do some serious sniper work talking like 200, 300 yards at night shooting through the woods with muskets. I'm, I'm sure they're rifled muskets, but they're still muskets. They're packing them back down. And it's like six shots, six kills from that distance. That point was a little, that was a little tough for me. So if any of you guys are firearms experts, black powder guys, jump in the comments. We'll call this uh scottsiglow.com slash podcast slash Mohicans. Cause that seemed a little out, took me out of the story. That's funny. I, I didn't have that problem, but I have a little, I had the thing that the one complaint I have is the I think the point of the movie from so many perspectives is it is this war story, but it's also a love story. Mm -hmm. And the love story is so ludicrous to me. It's the same problem I have, which uh, regular You wouldn't have fallen in love with Daniel Day-Lewis? I'm already in love with Daniel Day-Lewis. But, (laughs) but, and here's what's ludicrous about it, which is I think a failing on my part, actually. It's... In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's the same problem I have. Regular listeners of Stories Mac will have heard me talk about the zombie apocalypse. Mm -hmm. In an actual apocalypse, or even, you know, today, it's Wednesday today when we're recording, and it's a little muggy here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little sweaty, and I'm a little crabby about it, and whatever. And that doesn't happen at any moment. There's all this horrible, horrible killing and scalping and everything else. But Cora and Natty... Very don't, pretty. They don't get too sweaty. Very pretty, never dirty, never... And I know that's not the point of a movie like right. this, so that's why I say it's a failing on my, po- her my part. Her hair does get must. I mean, Slightly. not so much. Slightly she must is dewy. I wish I was dewy. I'm never dewy. <laughs> at uh, 58 minutes, ma'am, you get your Barry White moment. Let's, the, get, the, it let's get it on. Starts up, and Cora and Natty Bumpo. 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 <laughs> they bumpo to uglio. That's so much information. It's, it's one of the worst scenes in the movie, in my opinion. It just goes on and on and on. Without, uh, anyways, anyways. So it, then we get into our movie. Uh, Nat, 
Natty has been arrested. Daniel Day has been arrested for trying to get the farmers to let the uh, militiamen, the American militiamen go Mm -hmm. because the French and Indians are killing all the people, killing all their families along the farms, along the frontier, which was, you know, it's a psychological warfare that the French are doing. Right. They won't let him go. They wind up throwing him in prison. And yet even in the, and then Cora comes to him and even in the face of death, he is all about her telling her, stay by your father. That's your best protection. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. And he's super and hard. Cold. Come find you. Yeah. That's, that's coming. That's oh, coming. Oh, okay. At uh, two minutes later, the British are getting whooped by the French. The French reach their, their minimum distance for the, the mortars and start pummeling the crap out of the fort. Really cool stuff. Then they have a great, the parlay moment where the French commander played very well and right to who the actor is negotiates with the English commander. And the French commander's like, dude, you are no chance. You got zero chance. All we're going to do is kill all your men. You know, tell you what you, if you surrender, all the Americans can keep their weapons and go back to their farms. And then the English will walk you guys out and sh- put you on a ship and send you back and convinces the English guy to surrender. And then things start to go horribly wrong. Yeah. Continue to go horribly yes. wrong for the English. Yes. And then we have the French commander talking to Magua, and this is where we get Magua's motivation. About an hour and 10 minutes, we finally find out why he's, so he's had some great scenes so far. He's been hitting dudes with tomahawks and shooting dudes at point blank range and mohawking and doing all this other cool stuff. He was captured and taken as a slave by the Mohicans, last of the Mohicans. Well, not the guy, but he was taken by the, the Mohawk tribe. Uh, his wife thought he was dead, so she married another dude. So when he finally got out, that caused a lot of trauma. So yeah. a lot of trauma. Yeah. And his kids are gone. And Gray Hair, who is the English commander, is responsible for this. So Magua mm-hmm. is super pissed. And he says he won't give up his revenge campaign against English until Gray Hair and his seed are dead. He wants to kill all Gray Hair's children. Dun, dun. And, and then, basically, the French, he's talking to the French commander. And the French commander's like, I can't give you the order to do that or to attack him. I can't give it or not to attack him. And then slowly steps away into the bushes like Homer Simpson. Like, <laughs> he does. He totally like, does. It's well, true. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm not saying do it. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not, you're, I'm not the boss of you. And then we get a uh, minute 13 is in my opinion, I mean, the hour, most, 13, hour 13, the most spectacular um, battle scenes in it mm-hmm. where the long British column with civilians is coming down a trail. And there are, there are Hurons on both sides armed to, the bejesus mm-hmm. and they are there and it becomes this human stalking scene. It's incredibly powerful. The English columns going down the middle of this path and you see on both sides lurking in the underbrush, traveling along with them, the Huron and Magua, who's the commander is basically waiting for the right moment to launch the attack. And this stretches mm-hmm. out for a minute or two, it, which I think is psychological warfare. Oh, he's, it may he's be. just trying. He's saying like, you, you know, it's coming. You There's know it's nothing coming. you can do. There's nowhere to go. There's no help. And I think there's the moment where like the women and children or whoever are starting to break rank and move. It's the weirdest thing because they move directly into the Hurons. They mm-hmm. move perpendicular to the line, mm-hmm. but they're trying to get low to the ground and out of out of focal point, fo- focal distance is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's so psychologically jarring because you're like, but those are the people with the guns and the knives and the scalping who want to kill you. Yeah. Why are you walking right towards them? Yeah. And it's they so try to make a decision. Disconcerting. Yeah. And then it's, and you can see the English can hear it and everybody knows it's coming. So it's pretty. Then Magua sees gray hair, the English commander. Dump, dump. And it's, uh, and then the, the whooping starts and then we get this awesome slow play scene. And this is why this battle is so disturbing. It's not some instantaneous grand rush and, you know, it's not Braveheart with the armies clashing into each other. 
basically it's a slow play. The Hurons start shooting and they shoot a couple of rounds. The English are trying to, to fight back. And man does a lot of wide shot camera work to let you see the overpowering numbers of the Hurons on both sides. And these English who are screwed in the middle. And then there's this slow, stumbling, awkward approach from both sides yeah. as they're coming in and shooting and the English are trying to figure out what to do. And he just holds this camera shot and lets you see this isn't all that friggin' organized. This is going to be super ugly and brutal. Well, yes, and there's that there's that going back to what we were just saying before that the British fight like gentlemen mm-hmm. and expect everybody else to fight like gentlemen. Yeah. And gentlemen do not fight in a long straight line with women and children in that line with them. Mm-hmm. They get into formation and they have a front line and a midline and a back line and they do all that which they can't do and the Huron are not going to let them do. Yeah. And that doesn't compute kind of because the way that they have success is there is a general commanding these troops, front, middle, and back, mm-hmm. let's do this. Mm-hmm. They can't do any of that before they're all going to die. Yeah. It's... And so instead they just sort of sit there and blink. And that idea <sighs> that survival is somehow gentlemanly sort of falls apart as the Huron come awkwardly from and sides. ugly yeah. to kill them. It's It's almost a slow walk in. And you also see... Super cool stuff that he does. I mean, this is such an amazing piece of cinematography. A lot, some of the Hurons do rush in literally by themselves and walk right up to the English and just start hacking away. And some of them get killed. Some of the Hurons get killed. Some don't. And it is stumbly and awkward. And then everything breaks down and Natty Bumpo takes over. And you can tell that he watched Anchorman because- what? Yeah, you can tell Natty Bumpo watched Anchorman. I, I feel like this is untrue. It's because he keeps his head on a swivel. Uh, I see good, good when you advice a, from Ron When Burgundy. you get in a cockfight like that, you got to keep your head on a swivel. You, yes, yes. And he definitely does. And then you get to see some awesome, just badass Daniel Day-Lewis shit goes down from there. And then at one hour, 26 minutes, heading into the end, they're caught underneath the waterfall and the Huron are closing in and they got to jump over the waterfall. They're going to succeed. And then you get the classic line that has been mimicked many times through pop culture, the stay alive. Whatever occurs, stay alive. I will find you. And you're like, dude's baller. <laughs> it's a super powerful moment because basically I'm going to have to leave you to these people who are not going to treat you well at all. Your only objective is do whatever you have to do to stay alive. Well, I go out and figure out what the hell I'm going to do because if they find me, they're going to kill me. And then we have zero chance whatsoever. Right. It's it's crushing. What did you think of that scene? Because that's like the classic moment of that movie. Yeah. And you know, it's ter again, it's terrible. And I mentioned this at the beginning. I had never seen it before now because I had so I was a, a a theater major in college. So there was a lot of people talking quite a lot about the war aspect of it, the love trying or yeah. the, the love story aspect of it over and over and over again. And perfect movie and perfect movie and perfect movie. And like for me, I'm like Okay, I'm in Last Mohicans, and I understand that there's a white man in there, but the only one on the cover of the movie is the white man. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not really a Mohican. I mean, I know he is, but he's right. not, right? So I got like indignant. Yes, I got the way only a 20 year old can. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? Don't need to see it. Hmm. And I never, and I, I should have, I've watched a billion movies on my own since then. Yeah. I had the same problem with a lot of, I have a, I'm sort of a tech snob I've mentioned, but I went back and watched a lot of Brando. I went back and watched Citizen Kane after I got mm-hmm. over that. And, uh, I never did this. I just, it slipped through the cracks. So for me today, now that, uh, movie making has become a little, and uh, social mores, I guess have become a little more relaxed and movie making's become a little more visceral. Mm-hmm. This is really beautiful and really powerful, but I, I don't think 
this sweeping gesture, broad moment in the waterfall, even though that's not a very, very broad shot. There's other people there. There's, you know, it's not a very private moment. It rings a little 90s to me. It yeah. rings a little melodramatic to me. And I think that that's, I'm just a, I'm just a, a, a creature of my time more than anything else. Like today, if it was filmed today, that moment might be very, very close mm. up to the, you know, the camera might be two inches from their face. Uh-huh. And so for me, it was beautiful and it's a very powerful moment. But I think that that type of sweeping shot works or a wide shot works a little better in like uh, in the battle scenes and in Braveheart and in things like 300 even like those that I am saying this for the, for the room at large or the, the cave at large uh, (laughs) works a little better for war, not love. And this was the other part of the movie that I had a lot of trouble with. We have been well-versed in Magua's character and he is, he has already killed gray hair and eaten his heart. Before killing him, telling him, I'm going to end your seed, uh, your line dies with you. And then he finally gets the two girls. He gets the two daughters of gray hair. Does he kill them? No. He suddenly decides he doesn't want to kill them. He wants to do something else with them. So that was the one hand I'm like, okay, you guys have, Mr. Man, literally, Mr. Man, you have set this whole thing up where he's going, he wants to end, his revenge will end when he kills gray hair's children and gray hair, and then he totally has a chance to do it. And it's like the bad guy, when he catches James Bond, just shoot him in the head. So he yeah. doesn't do that. And then the other part about it that I didn't, I lo- I got taken out of the story was, I understand that jumping off a big cliff into the water and possibly drowning, I understand this sucks. And this is yes. a very difficult choice. I also understand that the guy who's coming just ate your dad's heart and you saw him do it (laughs) and just slaughtered men, women, and children, civilians and soldiers alike, and has got a huge force of men behind him. I'm not waiting for that dude. I'm taking my chances jumping off the cliff with the guys I'm with. Like I'm with these three guys who are armed and well, they're not armed. They're gunpowder's wet beside that, besides that point. It, It totally broke. It broke that moment broke my willing suspension of disbelief. Number one, Mog was going to kill him right on the spot. Number two, those girls would have jumped off that cliff. They would, there's no way they would have stayed. Yeah. And the only thing that I can think, and it doesn't solve your problem, um, is that in, in succession at this time, mm-hmm. the girls don't count. The girls don't count. They count, They'd, but they're, they're, they, I, I understand they're part of the bloodline. And I get that. And yet, they don't count. But he's been talking about killing those girls the whole time. Well, he's been talking about killing the seed, right? So they will make babies maybe, but they're not going to make graybeard babies. They're going to make somebody else. They're going to make whoever oh. they marry, right? It's like I said, it doesn't really solve your problem. It's pretty flimsy. But at that no. time, there, you know, uh, Salic Law says that the is the only one in the world at that moment, which I'm pretty sure maybe they don't know about in, in the movie in this mm-hmm. moment that says that any kind of ownership or responsibility would follow the germline of a queen or a woman. And that's it. The rest of the world, it, the, the, the boys matter and the, and the girls don't it could also necessarily. Be Mog was had his revenge on gray hair and that doesn't put out his internal fire. And now he's got these girls and somewhere in that character's head, it might be like, well, if I kill them and I still have all this burning hate inside of me, I've got nothing plus my whole identity. You know, it's the classic, you can't kill me out like the Conan thing. You can't kill me. I'm the one who made you who you are, which right. in really bad, in really bad movies, they're like, you're right. I can't kill you. I don't have any identity without you. You're like, nope, Conan cuts his head off. Boom, done. Right. 
So the Magua could have been like, well, could not, ra- could not quite rationalize that if he kills these yeah. girls, he's done. And this is both of our suppositions yeah, here we're just are, are we're really to, just reaching. We're trying to make a plot hole work is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I have no idea what happens in the book. So then we move on we, the great scene, an hour and 39 minutes, uh, the English dude who has been just a jackass, let's be honest. He's been uh, awful. Um, the English lead character, finally, he understands French and he understands the, the uh, Huron language and he's operating as a translator. No, he understands French. That They speak French because mm-hmm. the French have been there. And Daniel Day-Lewis is, they want to take Cora and give her to Magua. And Daniel's is like, no, no, take me. Mm-hmm. I, I Take me. I'm, I'm a bigger catch. I'm the one who's been killed a bunch of you. And then he's asking the English guy to translate for him. And the English guy, instead of accurately translating what Daniel Day-Lewis says, runs game on him. And in French, he's saying like, I, the English guy, am a much bigger prize. You should let them go and keep me. And then, you know, because of so-and-so and so-and-so. And And he convinces the Grand Chief of the Hurons that that's better. But then, as soon as Daniel Day-Lewis and Cora are gone, they they take the English dude and they string him up and they put him over a fire. And Huron tortures are supposedly legendary. Look those. Look up, you guys. Look up Huron torture on Google and see some of the crap that that went on. It was bad. But this is his his moment in the sun, right? Yeah. This is his moment to kind of make peace with the idea that he loved Cora and he, you know, this, that, and the other. And he's trying to. He probably knows he's going to die. Oh, he knows he's going to die. And he's horribly just, right. And he's trying to have a redeemable moment yep. in this chaos. And then they string him up and Daniel De, Daniel Day-Lewis and Cora are running away and they stop long enough for him to use his incredible marksmanship. And while the guy is burning alive, they uh, he, he pops a cap, shoots him and puts him out of his misery. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the, the brutal finale. And if you guys get, if you're just listening, you haven't watched a movie, you should pause now and just watch the movie because the end of this is so non-formula for Hollywood and yet formula at the same time. The younger Mohican is dead set on getting Alice, the younger sister, back because he's in love with her and she's Mm -hmm. in love with him. Mm -hmm. And he basically goes one against 16 and tries to, tries because he has to, he has no choice. His heart tells him he's got to save this, he's got to save the person he's in love with, end of story. Right. He tackles on the whole Huron tribe without without his dad, without Daniel Day-Lewis, and he winds up getting about six or seven of them. And then- Maybe. Magua, yeah. he, he does a good job. And then yeah. Magua finishes him real rough. It's, yeah. it's Magua's a killer knife fighter. And then we get the, then Daniel Day-Lewis, and now the official last of the Mohicans come up to get that final bit of revenge. And, uh, and we watch Papa, we watch Papa Mohican take Magua apart. Yeah. I it's will awesome. say though, the, for as much as I had trouble with the, the cave, the waterfall cave scene is a, is a little too a lot for me. Mm-hmm. This moment with the youngest brother and Alice, I think is pitch perfect. It's you like it? Gorgeous. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. She, it's one of those things. Alice, this entire movie has absolutely no autonomy. She's either Cora's younger sister. She's his love interest. Mm -hmm. She's her father's daughter. She has almost no lines and she still doesn't hear. Right. And yet she does the one thing that's in her control Mm -hmm. that she can do quote unquote for the love of her life, who Mm -hmm. at this point is already dead. Very Romeo and Juliet. Very, very Romeo and Juliet. And it's pitch perfect because she doesn't say a word Mm -hmm. there is no denouement where she's like okay listen all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it's beautiful and heartbreaking i think and uh and you know it 
I I don't know if this is a particular thing for me. I think it may be. I love movies where shit goes wrong and people get bloody for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And that for me worked perfectly. Yeah. Um, And lots of, also lots of sweeping vistas. (laughs) Many, many vistas. While people are dying left and right. Also lots of sweeping vistas and the heroes never miss. So basically here's what happened. America is the A team villains and all of the stormtroopers can't shoot anything because last of the Mohicans used up all of the accuracy. They, I don't think they're that's carrying, how accuracy they're works. carrying muskets and they never miss like musket to a musket in each arm on the run. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's a little bit, a lot, a little bit, a lot. Yeah. So there you go. So that is our recap of this story and this movie and this storytelling. So FDO. Yeah. I was wondering if there's anything you might know that we don't know. Well, let's take a look here. So this time, our list comes from IFC.com, the internationalfilmchannel.com. They have a great list. Only seven things this week. AK, only seven. Okay. Number seven. Last Mohicans had a famous military advisor. Captain Dale Dye, who served as the onset military advisor, has played soldiers in everything from platoon to band of brothers. So, And he totally looks the part, too. Have you seen this guy? Yeah. It's awesome because he's like a soldier. Like, you look at him, you're like, I'm a follow that dude. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not screwing with that dude. Uh, number six, big surprise. The first cut of the movie was three hours long. Oh, God. Now, I forgot to tell you about this part, too. We, uh, we couldn't get Last Mohicans. The original theatrical cut, because it said it wasn't available in our area. Watch it on, uh, on Amazon. But Last of the Mohicans director's cut was available. So we watched the quote-unquote director's cut, which added a whopping four minutes of footage. Yeah. Four four minutes, which is probably all the Barry White scene, is, is my <laughs> opinion. But they trimmed, so they trimmed, let's see, 120, 180 minutes down to 112 for the theatrical release. Man added, there is an additional five minutes to the 2010 Blu-ray and dubbed it the definitive director's cut. Number five, you would not expect it from Daniel Day-Lewis, but he is a master prankster. Oh, this is well, this is actually well known if you're at all familiar with his filmography and stage career. I did not know that. But according to the New York Times, Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe engaged in a prank war during filming that culminated in Daniel Day-Lewis staging a gruesome fake car accident for Stowe to witness. (laughs) Even when he's pulling pranks, Daniel Day-Lewis still drinks your milkshake. Uh, that's pretty, that's, that's a lot of work. A oh, gruesome work. fake car crash. What a dick. I'm yeah. sorry. That's a dick yeah, move. Yeah. But corpsing is a pretty, that's called corpsing. Corpsing? That's a thing? It, yep. It's, well, not, not the, the, the pranking each other is called corpsing. Uh-huh. Uh, on the stage it's called corpsing anyway. And it's a really, what is, really. Tell, tell us what corpsing on the stage is. It's anything. So when I was in college and uh, I was in a play with my friends, I made the, had made the mistake months earlier at a party, completely not in school. I'd made the mistake of mentioning that I hoped my parents had sex, but I didn't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a show, I think maybe called Blythe Spirit or something. And uh, there's a whole, and it's about a ghost and like drawers open and uh, picture frames tip because the ghost is moving things around. Okay. And and that's Blythe. And um, everything, every drawer that opened had a piece of paper that said, A, your parents have sex. 
Every book that fell on the floor open had like stick <laughs> figures going A's mom, A's dad, oh, and sex. Oh man! Because the idea is to get you to break character while you're on stage. While you're on stage, what a dick move! That's it's terrible. a super dick move. Yeah. Oh, you actors, man! I don't know about you guys. Uh, number four on our list: the production crew assembled a massive recreation of Fort William Henry based on actual 18th century building plans. They built the whole thing. And if you build it, the French will come, apparently. And did they, the French come? The French did come, and they did not, Fort William Henry did not fare well. Oh, I meant to the reproduction. Um, I don't know. I bet there was somebody French there. I think there were people of French descent. This exactly. is America, after all. Exactly. Number three, all those sweeping grand vistas, A, where do you think those were? Not New York? No. What vistas were we looking at? Mm. Audience, write down, your, write down your guess right now. Not Cleveland. That was the Appalachian Mountains, though. It was not Cleveland. It was not Cleveland. So somewhere on the East Coast. Somewhere in the East Coast. North Carolina. Mm. There you go. Despite it being set in New York State, filming took place in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. Man felt that the North Carolina Mountains better resembled the lush, unspoiled terrain of the time period. Number two, not that much of a trivia bit, but it's a 25-year-old movie. Andy McDowell was considered for the role of Cora Monroe. Mm-hmm. which isn't surprising considering that she and Madeline Stowe basically played every brunette love interest role during the 90s. McDowell and Stowe went on to co-star in the feminist Western Bad Girls. I don't think I've seen Bad, Bad Girls. Have you seen it? I have. Is it good? I've seen it. Um, <laughs> You've seen it? I've seen it. It's not as good as The Quick and the Dead? Uh, oh, well. Uh, no, it isn't as good as The Quick and the Dead, but to be fair, I don't remember a ton about it other than their costumes, so I, I can only imagine it wasn't great, 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 but it wasn't bad, bad, bad. Either. Okay. Finally, the number one piece of trivia you may not have known uh, is Daniel Day-Lewis really got into the role. So much for trivia. Ever the method actor, Daniel Day-Lewis prepared for the role of Hawkeye. There's the name I was looking for during the whole podcast. <laughs> Fucking Hawkeye. Sorry, guys. Uh, he lived in the woods for several days and learned how to hunt and skin animals. On set, he stayed in character by avoiding modern technology, traveling by canoe, and rolling his own cigarettes. His trusty flintlock rifle never left his left his side, even brought it to Christmas dinner. Oh my goodness. Yes, that seems a bit precious, but he has won three Academy Awards, so perhaps I won't second guess the man. Fair, that's fair. Um, I, the other thing I remember about Bad Girls is Drew Barrymore is in it. Oh, shoot. And I didn't Mary know that. Stuart that, Masterson, that changes everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, and the costumes are great. The costumes uh, are great. Okay. Yeah. So anyway. But as not as good as Sharon Stone in The Quick and the Dead. To be fair, that's the best part of The Quick and the Dead, I think, is Sharon Stone, or the very young DiCaprio. Oh, the young DiCaprios. I keep telling you people, I'm on a different <laughs> level. I fucking love him. I love him. And Gene Hackman, of course, can't do anything bad ever. Yeah. We should do that one sometime. I yeah. love that movie. So yeah. fun. Okay. All right. So I think that does it finally for this episode. Okay. okay. We do hope that you guys have enjoyed episode 23 of Story Smack. Let us know what movie, TV show, book, or other story or storyteller you would like us to talk about. Email your idea to info at Empty Set. And this week we got quite a few great ideas. Good. So uh, we're going to get see if we can schedule those up so keep those coming thanks all so right, much all right you can find us both online scott is at scott sigler on twitter and instagram and his facebook page is facebook.com slash scott sigler i'm at a real girl on twitter and a dot real dot girl on instagram you can find this podcast online at scott sigler.com slash story smack we'd love to see your comments there 
You can find us on iTunes. As usual, just search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday and a big hit of Story Smack every Friday. Most every Friday. Most every Friday. We do the best we can. Yeah. So, until next time, we will talk to you all real real soon. soon. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.